0: Good evening, everyone. My name's James Levine. I'm Dean of Research and Graduate Studies at John Jay. And I first would like to express the regrets of uh, President Travis, who normally introduces this wonderful book and author series, but unavoidably, he has another engagement and con- cannot make it. And this series, where a, a prominent author uh, shares his or her uh, sort of the highlights of his or her recent books with the John Jay community has now become a fixture of John Jay, um, and and there's much that's new about John Jay. In fact, I was just laughing with somebody and saying, asking what what's old about John Jay? But this is getting to be old. It's getting to be regular, routine, and it, and it's and it's terrific. The books that are presented, some are from people outside the college, as is the case tonight, others by uh, our John Jay faculty. Uh, The books are almost invariably controversial. They're almost always topical, and they are great opportunities for us to hear about important ideas, and then to get a commentator to think about the ideas expressed in the book, and then to have the entire community join in the discussion. So at this point, uh, my, my role ends. And I am delighted to turn the rest of the evening off over to my colleague, Debbie Makamal, who is the extraordinary director of the Prisoner Reentry Institute, <laughs> which has done such wonderful things at this college in such a short period of time. So Debbie Makamal.
1: Welcome everybody. It's really terrific to see so many of you here, especially to see so many students. Um, I think that this is just a terrific subject matter and a terrific book. So um, uh, we're really thrilled to have Bruce here. Um, I want to start by letting people know that Eric Eckholm unfortunately um, had to cancel out. He wanted to make sure that um, people knew that he was really sorry. He had prepared and (laughs) was certainly ready and excited to talk about the book. So um, we're hopeful that um, Mr. Ekman will be able to come back to the college at some point soon. Um, So with that, that means, selfishly, that we get to ask more questions. So that's a good thing um, for us. Um, I'm going to introduce Bruce briefly. And then Bruce is going to talk for about 30 minutes or so about the book and then we'll open it up to questions. So uh, Bruce Western is a professor of sociology at Princeton University. He has research interests in political sociology, stratification and inequality, and statistical methods. His first book, Between Class and Market, studied the rise and decline of labor unions in Western Europe and North America. His current research examines contemporary patterns of inequality in the American penal system and the consequences of incarceration for the economic opportunities of men leaving prison and jail. This research was published by the Russell Sage Foundation in the book, Punishment and Inequality in America. Um, Professor Western's research has received support from the Mott Foundation, the Jet Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the National Institute of Justice. He has received awards from the American Sociological Association and the Law and Society Association. He's a Jean Monnet Fellow at the European University Institute, a Russell Sage Foundation Visiting Scholar, and a Guggenheim Fellow. Um, I also, um, he, you may remember that uh, Professor Western was here about a year and a half ago when we launched the occasional series on reentry research. Um, with his colleague, Diva Pager, who released studies of a an, an <coughs> very important audit study that looked at the effects of criminal record and race on the entry-level ma- labor market here in New York City. Um, and finally, um, Professor Western is a member of the advisory board of the Prisoner Reentry Institute, and for that, uh, we are extremely grateful um, because his expertise um, and enthusiasm for the subject is really appreciated.
2: very much, Debbie. Um, I'm uh, very grateful uh, for the invitation from uh, John Jay to speak to you today uh, about my new book, uh, Punishment uh, and Inequality in America. I'm uh, especially indebted, I think, uh, to Jeremy Travers. Uh, Jeremy has uh, has been a a wonderful supporter uh, over the last six or seven years. He he has uh, a a genius for uh, bringing diverse groups of people together and and fostering uh, robust discussions among them. And uh, I I feel just very, very lucky indeed uh, to have been part of those conversations uh, that uh, Jeremy has been supporting, particularly about the issue of uh, of prisoner reentry. Jeremy also has... a, a great genius for surrounding himself with very very talented people, and in this context, uh, I'm also very grateful to have uh, been able to work with uh, work with Debbie through the Prisoner Reentry Institute. Uh, let me today uh, try and summarise what I see as the main argument of this book and some of the most uh, important uh, empirical findings, and I think. The book, uh, which examines the growth of the penal system in the United States over the last 30 years, uh, ultimately poses a policy question. Uh, What do we do do now? What do we do uh, with American criminal justice policy now? And so I want to conclude by opening up uh, that question uh, for the floor. Uh, But before talking about policy, uh, I want to talk a a little bit about sociology. I'm a, a, a sociologist, and, and the prism through which I view this problem of the growth of uh, the American penal system is very much shaped uh, uh, by I- ideas uh, in the sociology of citizenship uh, that were originally formulated by a British sociologist, T.H. Marshall. And Marshall said that citizenship is the basic human equality associated with full membership in a community. So it's not just a matter of holding a passport. Citizenship is is a status uh, which accrues to you by by virtue of being a member of a society. Now, uh, Marshall also argued that citizenship is the architect of legitimate inequality. And by this, he means uh, that as citizenship rights expand, uh, as as political rights uh, grow into social rights to welfare, and so on, inequalities reduced. But he also means that the kinds of inequalities that arise under a particular set of citizenship institutions appear to us as natural, uh, uh, appear to us as normal, and they're very intractable for that reason. And I think, uh, I, I think this is a, a very good perspective uh, to bring uh, to the American prison boom, because what I'm going to argue is that the growth in imprisonment in the United States has affected a, a, a transformation in the quality of American citizenship. So here's the argument. One, we are currently living in an era of mass imprisonment. And I'm going to try and explain what I, what I mean by that. And this era of mass imprisonment has transformed for a generation of young African American men the pathway they chart through young adulthood. So the life experience, the collective biography of this generation of young African-American men has been transformed by the growth uh, in the penal system. This group of young, uh, disadvantaged African-American men now form the core of a permanently disadvantaged population. So in this context, the penal system is chiefly important not so much for its effects on crime, which is normally how we think uh, about the, uh, the prison, uh, but for its effects on social inequality and the quality of citizenship uh, in the United States. And I'm, What I'm going to try and do now is to try and provide some empirical evidence for each step uh, in this argument. So, for many of you, uh, the statistics that I'm ab- about to provide will be very, very familiar. And what I want to do is put the US experience in comparative and historical context. So if we begin to think about prisons uh, overseas in Western Europe, in other advanced industrialized uh, democracies, we can see uh, from this chart that the incarceration rates in Western European countries vary in a relatively narrow band between about 50 and 100 per 100,000 for the population. So that's about 0.1% of the population on any given day in these Western European countries uh, is in prison. Uh, In the United States, of course, the penal system is almost an order of magnitude larger. The incarceration rate in the early 2000s was about 700 per 100,000, not 100 per 100,000 as it is. Uh, in Western Europe. Uh, And so uh, from this comparative perspective, if we compare the US to these other uh, advanced democracies, uh, the US is very unusual indeed. Uh, And the current experience is also historically unusual. We have very good time series data uh, on the size of the prison population that go all the way back to the 1920s. And if we look at the prison incarceration rate in the United States, From the 1920s through the mid-1970s, through this 50-year period, the incarceration rate uh, hasn't changed greatly. It varied in this relatively narrow band around 100 per 100,000, what's roughly now the West European average. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the mid-1970s. The penal system began to grow, and prisons grew every year for the next 35 years, and they're still growing. Uh, This is not... The whole casual population, as we know, if we uh, add jail inmates to these figures, by uh, 2004, 2005, we now have about 2.1 million people in prison and jail. This isn't the whole population under criminal justice supervision, of course, because there are another 765,000 people who are on parole. There are another 4.1 million people uh, on probation. So altogether, Uh, By 2004, 2005, uh, we had around 7 million people under criminal justice uh, supervision. And this is historically novel. This is historically new. We only need to go back two decades to find a period uh, in American history uh, when this wasn't so. So we're really uh, living uh, in this respect in quite a new time. But this isn't... These trends, which I think are are certainly familiar to people who follow uh, uh, the criminal justice system in the United States, these trends, I think, are not the most important thing about the uh, the changes uh, in the American penal system. If we look at the American population uh, as a whole, uh, we know that by 2004, uh, we had about 0.7 of 1% of the population in prison or jail. Now I'm making the argument right that the growth in imprisonment in the United States has had a substantial effect on American social inequality. How can an institution that houses only 0.7 of 1% of the entire population have a significant effect on uh, uh, social inequality in the nation as a whole. The effects of uh, the penal system on American social inequality derive their importance precisely from the fact that they're so narrowly concentrated in a small and disadvantaged segment of the population so if we calculate <coughs> excuse me if we calculate more disaggregated uh, incarceration rates if we look at young white men for example we can see that their incarceration rates by by uh, uh, By uh, 2004, 2005, their incarceration rates are about three times higher than the national average. About 2% of young white men uh, are currently behind bars, either in prison uh, or in jail. Uh, If we look at young white men with very low levels of schooling, if we look at young white men who have dropped out of high school, haven't finished high school, uh, we can see that about 7% of those white high school dropouts, those young men, Uh, are currently incarcerated. And this is 10 times higher uh, than the national average. Now, one of the most striking things about uh, uh, incarceration in the United States, of course, is the massive racial disparity. So we can calculate similar disaggregated figures for young African-American men. Uh, If we look at young African-American men aged in their 20s, by 2005, the incarceration rate was about 14%. So about one in seven black men in their 20s are currently behind bars right now. Uh, And if we look at the very bottom of the education distribution among high school dropouts, I estimate that fully one third of those men, fully one third of those young African-American high school dropouts uh, are currently incarcerated. And this is the context, I think, in which uh, the penal system derives its significance as an institutionalized influence on uh, 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 American social inequality. Now, we can think about incarceration rates in a different way. The figures I just showed you were a snapshot at a point in time. And they described, what's the fraction of the population who are in prison at uh, at this point in time, on an average day in 2004 or 2005? Now, we might think about the risk of imprisonment in a different way. We might ask, what's the likelihood that someone's ever going to go to prison at some point in their lives? Well, what's the likelihood that someone will ever go to prison by their mid-30s, which is essentially the same as your lifetime, uh, your lifetime risk uh, of imprisonment? And so uh, Becky Pettit and I uh, calculated uh, these cumulative risks of imprisonment for two different cohorts of men. First, we considered men who were born just after World War II. So these were men who were born 45 to 49. And they were reaching their mid-30s at the end of the 1970s, right at the beginning of the prison boom. Okay, And we compare the experience of these men who were born uh, just after the war to men who were born in the late 1960s. And these men who were born in the late 1960s are reaching their mid-30s at the end of the 1990s. So these men born in the late 1960s uh, uh, and are now in their early 40s. Okay. The, figures, uh, the figures on the slide show the lifetime risks, or the cumulative risk uh, of imprisonment uh, uh, for white men born, uh, or for black and white men born in this younger cohort, born just after the war. And, and the big figures, of course, are for African-American men with low levels of schooling who haven't been to college. And, and for African-American men, haven't been to college, if you were born just after the war, there's a 1 in 8 chance that you will go to prison uh, by your mid-30s. And now we're just talking about prison incarceration. Okay, So this is uh, 28 months of institutionalisation, 28 months of incarceration at the median uh, uh, for a felony conviction. We're not talking uh, about jail incarceration. The figures would be vastly higher if we included uh, jail incarceration. Uh, And we can see that for high school dropouts, nearly one in five of those men born just after the war uh, uh, would get a prison record. Now let's look at the birth cohort that are born uh, in the late 60s. And for this group, who are growing up through the prison boom, growing up through the period in which incarceration rates increased so dramatically, for non-college men, this is basically the bottom half of the education distribution of black men uh, born. Uh, in the late 1960s, about a third of those men uh, will uh, will go to prison uh, at some point in their lives. If they dropped out of high school, uh, about 60% of those men uh, will go to prison at some point and uh, uh, have a prison record. Uh, so uh, incarceration uh, for this disadvantaged uh, segment of the African-American population has become a modal life event, more common than not. And this is completely (coughs) novel. We need to go back only uh, two decades to find a generation that have a wholly different social experience, in which incarceration uh, is not a routine stopping point on the pathway through uh, young adulthood. Now, sociologists of the life course typically don't study incarceration. Generally, if you're interested in the life course, the passageway uh, through uh, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, uh, you study things like marriage, getting a job, finishing your schooling, serving in the military, which has been uh, found by life course sociologists to be a pivotal event, particularly uh, for the, uh, the generation uh, who served in World War II. Um, but because incarceration rates are so extraordinarily high now, I'm arguing that we should count uh, imprisonment as a key life event in the life course uh, of recent birth cohorts of uh, African-American men. If we look at marriage rates, there's a, racial di- uh, a large racial disparity in marriage rates. There's a large racial disparity in uh, obtaining a, a four-year degree. Uh, there's a large racial disparity in military service. These are the familiar markers. Uh, of uh, young adulthood uh, that life course sociologists study. If we compare imprisonment to these other life events, we can see that the likelihood of going to prison for this birth cohort of African-American men uh, born, now this is all African-American men, born since, uh, born since the late 1960s. Going to prison is now more common than obtaining a four-year degree, it's more common uh, than past uh, uh, military service. The figures show that one in five, about 22%, I estimate, of uh, African-American men born in the late 1960s will uh, wind up with a prison record. Um, the other important thing about this slide is that nothing distinguishes the life experience of blacks from whites than their contact with the criminal justice system. Uh, Sociologists have spent a lot of time studying racial disparities in marriage rates, spent a lot of time studying racial disparities uh, in educational attainment. The inequalities in marriage and education are tiny compared to the inequalities uh, in incarceration. So I think something potentially important is going on here uh, uh, about uh, uh, the novel, uh, the novel life experience of, of African Americans in the era of mass imprisonment. Now David Garland, uh, uh, the sociologist at NYU, uh, coins this term mass imprisonment. And what is mass imprisonment? Uh, Garland says mass imprisonment consists of two things. First, it's a level of imprisonment that's unusual. It's historically unusual and comparatively unusual. We've seen evidence for that. Uh, incarceration rates are historically high and uh, a, a, Uh, extraordinarily high compared to uh, Western Europe. But then he goes on to say (coughs) that mass imprisonment uh, involves incarceration rates so high that we're no longer incarcerating individual offenders, but incarcerating whole social groups. So at what point do we go from incarcerating individual offenders to whole social groups? What I've tried to do in this empirical analysis is to provide some empirical markers of what it means to incarcerate the group as opposed to the individual. When the experience of incarceration becomes a modal life event, if we can point to a demographic group, the birth cohort that's defined by its race and its education, and say that 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 group is more likely to go to prison than not, and no other other social group in the population shares that exposure uh, to the criminal justice system, I think we, we can talk about mass imprisonment, and we can talk about uh, the collective incarceration, the incarceration of the group rather than the individual. Um, that's only half the story, and I'm, I'm sure I've used more than half my time. The other part of the story, <coughs> the other part of the story uh, is about social inequality. What are the effects of these very high uh, incarceration rates? And tonight, I wanted to talk uh, about two kinds of effects. Um, Very high rates of incarceration create what I call invisible inequality. Prisoners are not counted in our usual measures of economic well-being. How do we normally measure economic well-being uh, in the population? Uh, We we use household surveys, uh, uh, surveys like the current population survey that ask people about their wages and uh, their employment status and a whole bunch of demographic information. These are surveys that are drawn uh, on samples of the non-institutional population, samples of households. If some groups are highly institutionalized, they won't be counted in these assessments uh, of economic well-being. The consequence of that is that the picture of the economic status of those groups in official statistics will be much more, much too optimistic, much too optimistic. And that group will be uh, doing worse than we think, in fact. And I'm going to provide some concrete evidence uh, for that idea. It means that we'll overestimate employment rates in official statistics. uh, And we will uh, tend to overestimate uh, wage rates uh, in official statistics. I'm going to talk uh, only about employment, today. In addition to this invisible inequality, in addition uh, to this failure to count a a growing and disadvantaged fraction of the population uh, in official statistics, uh, incarceration, of course, uh, increases inequality. Because uh, those who are incarcerated ultimately uh, return to the communities uh, from which they originated. and, uh, uh, And they suffer an economic penalty Uh, as a consequence of their incarceration. I'm going to provide you with some estimates of how large that economic penalty is. Uh, Family life uh, is also disrupted, and I'll provide some uh, very brief some evidence of that. (coughs) So let's uh, let's think a little bit about this idea of invisible uh, inequality, invisible inequality. So the time series on the slide there shows us the employment rate, this is the ratio Of employment to the population, uh, measured by the current population survey, that's our main labor force survey for measuring uh, employment and wages in the United States, uh, for African-American men uh, with less than a college education uh, in their 20s, okay. And uh, the figure shows that there's been a a fairly steady decline uh, in employment rates from about Uh, Nearly 75% uh, from the labor market peak of uh, the late 80s uh, through to 2004. Uh, The figure also shows uh, the economic (coughs) expansion of the 1990s. From about 94 through about 2000, employment rates rates increased uh, a little bit. And over this period through the 90s, the economy was growing out of control. The labor market uh, became very, very tight in the United States. Unemployment dropped to the lowest level uh, in 40 years. We began to see articles in the newspaper saying that uh, the employment opportunities, the economic situation of young black men was finally beginning to turn around. This was a group that's been very hard to reach with public policy, but a strong economy was uh, providing benefits that were uh, uh, filtering through even to the margins of the labor market, uh, and wages and uh, wages and employment improving and strong growth policy, strong economic uh, economic growth, uh, could deliver uh, where public policy that was targeted at these groups could not. That was the story. Uh, If we include prison and jail inmates in our count of the population, and of course they're they're jobless, they're they're not employed on the open labor market, uh, the picture looks uh, different, right? So this is a new time series now of an employment-to-population ratio. And all I do here is just add prison and jail inmates to my count of the population for this group of uh, African-American men in their 20s uh, who Mm -hmm. haven't been to college. And uh, the figures show that uh, by 2000, uh, 2005, uh, about half of those men are working, about half uh, are out of work. The gap between the lines... Uh, that we see is entirely due to the uh, uh, high rate of incarceration. The gap between the lines uh, precisely records uh, uh, the effects of incarceration. The other important thing about this uh, time series is that through the 1990s, there's no uh, improvement uh, in the employment situation at all of uh, young, low education, uh, African-American men. So the the appearance of an improvement in employment is completely overshadowed by the growth in imprisonment. Uh, This analysis and other analysis I've done in the book shows that uh, young black men with low levels of schooling uh, obtained no economic benefit at all from the economic expansion of the 1990s. The rest of the economy uh, obtained, uh, in some cases, considerable benefit from the economic expansion, young black men uh, with low levels of schooling, did not any appearance of an improvement in their economic situation is completely an artifact of the growth in their incarceration rates. Uh, so that's invisible inequality. Uh, the other part of this story is increased inequality, and I'll I'll move through this reasonably uh, reasonably quickly. Um, it's interesting when I when I uh, uh, present pieces of this analysis. Uh, To different audiences. If I ask people, you know, do do you think uh, do you think spending time in prison or jail uh, might hurt uh, your economic prospects uh, on the labour market? Uh, Some audiences will say, well, of course, that that stands to reason, and we can we can think of a number of reasons why having a a, a criminal record or having spent time in prison or jail might reduce uh, your economic opportunities, make you a less productive worker. Uh, Your human capital will be diminished. You've spent time out of the labor force. Often, uh, the conditions of confinement, uh, the behavioral adaptations you have to make to survive in uh, prison uh, 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 are not functional uh, for the routines of regular employment. Uh, uh, The longer you spend in, we know, uh, the weaker your connections to the family uh, and community from which you originated. uh, the, those family connections and community connections are a source of job opportunities, so those uh, those connections uh, become weaker. And of course, uh, uh, incarceration, uh, having a criminal record, confers a stigma. Employers are very uh, uh, very reluctant to hire uh, men with criminal records. That was what we found in the audit study in New York City, and uh, a lot of survey data uh, shows that as well. Uh, it's a hard problem for causal inference though, uh, and uh, in some audiences I speak to, there are, there's a lot of scepticism. You know, uh, There's uh, the real belief that these are men who would have a lot of difficulty finding jobs, uh, even if they weren't incarcerated. And uh, the, the, the deficits, uh, the educational and skill deficits of these men uh, are substantial. And, and the book spends some time trying to explain Uh, how we can figure out, well, what's the effect of incarceration, and what's the effect of just having a very low level of schooling, little work experience, and perhaps a a bunch of behavioural problems that make you less productive, uh, and so on. And and so I I try to tease that apart in the book and provide some survey data estimates of the effects of incarceration uh, (coughs) in the labour market, and this is a very quick thumbnail sketch uh, of the results. So this is saying that if you serve time in prison, these are, these are results from a data analysis of the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult problem to study with survey data because we typically do not uh, survey people uh, in prison or jail, un- unless it's a correctional survey. Uh, the, the NLSY is unusual. Uh, because it tracks people over a long period of time, and uh, if people are incarcerated, uh, it, uh, the NLSY will interview them in prison. Uh, the NLSY began in 1979. Uh, they're in the field. Uh, they're in the field right now uh, with their their new wave in 2006. So they've followed this cohort over a 25-year period. Uh, ab- about one in five. In the African American sample in the NLSY, have been interviewed in a correctional facility at some point uh, over the course of the survey, which is an extraordinary number. I think the NLSY data show that the uh, imprisonment reduces the hourly wages uh, reduces the hourly wages of men by about a quarter. Uh, if you serve time in prison, uh, your employment will be reduced about seven weeks. And this is compared to other crime involved, perhaps drug using, uh, low work experience, low education men who have not been incarcerated. Okay, So even compared to that disadvantaged population, uh, the effect of imprisonment is about seven weeks a year in employment. Uh, the effect on hourly wages, low hourly wages, uh, and um, a high level of unemployment means your earnings, your annual earnings over a year, is reduced. It's reduced by about 40 percent. Uh, the uh, the rate of hourly wage growth, the way wages grow through your 20s and 30s, uh, the rate of hourly wage growth is uh, is much flatter uh, for these men. It's, uh, uh, about 27 percent flatter. Uh, wage growth is enormously uh, important. Most men uh, experience about two-thirds of their wage growth by their early 40s, and uh, uh, growing wages produced by steady employment uh, and promotion up a job ladder uh, allows men to, uh, allow men to play a pro-social role uh, in families and households, right? It allows you to increasingly support uh, a household. Uh, the possibility of doing that, of supporting a household, as your wages grow as you age, uh, is uh, the possibility of doing that is reduced for men uh, with uh, prison records. Finally, uh, your job tenure is reduced by about uh, 34%. The amount of time you spend in any one job is reduced by about a third. So the picture that emerges from these data is uh, of a group of men who are churning in the labor market through low-wage jobs. That offer little opportunity uh, for advancement, uh, and who face a, a very high risk uh, of unemployment, and, and and they are even more marginalised than similar low-skilled, low-cognitive ability, low work experience, uh, you know, low work experience men who have not been incarcerated. Imprisonment and family disruption. Statistical analysis, which I'm not going to show you, shows that ex-prisoners are less likely to get married. For those that uh, that are married, uh, few relationships in the NLSY, at least, uh, survive uh, uh, time in prison. Uh, For those marriages that do survive uh, uh, time in prison, Uh, The risk of divorce or separation is very high uh, after uh, the men uh, are released from prison, Uh, and so uh, incarceration has an enormously disruptive effect on a group uh, whose uh, family situation uh, is already weakened uh, to begin with. This is a group uh, whose non-marital birth rates uh, uh, has been increasing, uh, whose marriage rates uh, uh, has been declining. A a simple empirical picture of these effects of the growth in imprisonment on family life, I think, can be seen by considering uh, the number of children uh, with a father in prison. Uh, I estimate that there are about half a million uh, white kids uh, by 2000. About 1% of all white kids currently have uh, a father in prison or jail. Father in prison or jail. Among Latino kids. Uh, about 400,000 of those under 18 uh, by 2000 had a father uh, in prison or jail. That's about 3.5% of, the, of uh, Latino kids. Uh, and among African American kids um, over a million of those uh, have a father in uh, prison or jail. That's uh, that's about 1 in 10. Uh, if we looked at Young, uh, if we looked at young children, children under 10, uh, the numbers would be uh, even, uh, even higher. Uh, so not only is imprisonment becoming a routine life event uh, for young birth cohorts of low a- uh, education, African-American men, uh, parental incarceration is becoming a routine life event for their children. Uh, so let me, uh, let me try and conclude here. Uh, What have I shown? Imprisonment uh, has become a normal event for young black men with little school. We saw estimates of 60% for high school dropouts, uh, 30% for uh, non-college black men born since the 1960s will go to prison. Uh, As a consequence of these very high rates of incarceration, uh, the pictures of uh, the economic status of this group in official statistics is much too optimistic. This group obtained no economic benefit from the economic uh, expansion uh, of the 1990s. They were left out of of that period uh, of American prosperity. Uh, Incarceration uh, has also become an important cause of economic disadvantage disadvantage for African American men. After they uh, are released, and we see this in figures on uh, wages, earnings, employment, wage growth, uh, job 10. So let's think about Marshall again for one second, I'm very close to the end. Um, remember that Marshall said that citizenship is that basic human equality that's associated with full membership uh, in a community. And citizenship is the architect uh, of legitimate inequality, inequality that appears to us as natural, perhaps as the consequence. Uh, of deviant behaviour. Here are some implications. I think by sharpening the lines of social exclusion, uh, mass imprisonment has reduced the scope uh, of uh, citizenship uh, in the United States. Uh, The quality of citizenship is diminished, and those who are full citizens, uh, uh, the numbers of those who who are full citizens have been... Uh, Reduced, And this comes at a time immediately following the great gains to citizenship uh, produced for African Americans by the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. The prison boom begins in the mid-1970s, hard on the, heels of, uh, hard on the heels of civil rights. And so citizenship begins to contract uh, precisely at a time uh, when the promise of full citizenship is held out to... Uh, African-Americans for the first time. Uh, through its effects on economic status and mobility and on families, mass imprisonment tends to become self-sustaining. Because of the effects, the economic effects in the labor market, because of the effects on families, the kinds of inequalities that are produced by mass imprisonment are very enduring. Enduring over the life course and from one generation uh, to the next generation. I don't think they're known. I think this is largely going on below the radar. I think in the African American community, uh, statistics like this uh, are well known and well understood. Uh, but in the mainstream of American culture, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's well known. Uh, and this, I think, is uh, uh, as much a story about poverty and inequality as it is about crime. What, what do we do in a concrete way uh, for policy? Uh, uh, I think we need to uh, invest in re entry policy. Uh, this seems to be uh, the opening now uh, in which uh, policymakers are open to, or uh, uh, well, this seems to be the area in which policymakers are now open to a more progressive, or more rehabilitative approach uh, to corrections. What does uh, reentry policy uh, consist of? I probably don't have to tell uh, this audience, uh, but certainly things like transitional employment, transitional housing, uh, uh, drug treatment after... Uh, release uh, uh, are very important. Honestly, uh, the evaluation research shows that the effects of programs like this are not large. Uh, Reentry policy will not solve all the problems created by uh, the run-up in uh, the prison population. And our expectations should be uh, modest, but we should also measure the benefits of reentry policy uh, broadly as well, I think. If an education program is making someone functionally literate, then they're going to be a, a better and more effective citizen, right? They're going to, more fully, uh, be, they're going to be able to more fully participate uh, in, in civic life and uh, be a more effective parent, a more effective partner, a more effective person in their community, even to some extent, regardless of the effect on recidivism, I have to say. And so uh, I think we need uh, to think about the benefits uh, of reentry policy more broadly. Reentry policy also symbolises uh, an institutional commitment to the idea that punishment is final. Right. The social role of those who pass through the criminal justice system is not to be permanently uh, permanently marked uh, as an official criminal. Uh, but there is an institutional commitment bring people back into society after, uh, after punishment uh, has finished. So uh, the, the other benefit I see of re-entry policy is to repudiate the idea of permanent criminality, which has guided, I think, a lot of the policies that have driven uh, the, the prison boom, and uh, uh, instead embrace an idea of the finite character of, uh, of punishment and the appropriate social role of people in a community as citizens. Uh, Second policy uh, suggests we have to re-examine sentencing. Uh, Ultimately, I think, uh, uh, we need to uh, rethink uh, particularly drug sentencing. Uh, The social science evidence shows that little is gained in public safety uh, by uh, mandatory incarceration uh, for uh, drug offenders. And and that's a a prime prime area in which we could uh, rethink policy. I think also very long sentences, sentence enhancements for uh, second and third time felony convictions uh, also need to be reconsidered. reconsidered. We're uh, increasingly now incarcerating what's becoming an elderly population. And again, that serves uh, very little public safety function. And so we need to re-examine very, uh, very long sentences. Life without parole is a sentence that's unknown in Western Europe, for example. And, And I think that deserves... Uh, deserves reconsideration, but this is only one small piece of the whole story. I think what went on uh, in the growth of the, with the growth of the penal system, uh, beginning in the mid 1970s, uh, uh, was uh, the emergence of a whole variety of urban problems, which the penal system was called on to manage, and. To Ultimately those social problems require social policy solutions rather than penal solutions. And I think uh, uh, if we are to uh, solve the problems of urban disorder, uh, drug addiction, uh, mental illness and chronic idleness among young men, the prison is going to help us uh, very little actually. And we will in fact need social policies if we are interested. If we as a society are interested in solving those problems, we need policies, social policies, that are directed uh, to those social uh, problems specifically. Uh, And the guiding philosophy behind all of these suggestions uh, is one in which institutions of justice uh, should be about the promotion of citizenship, uh, the, the promotion Uh, of social inclusion, the restoration of uh, this uh, full equality uh, that Marshall talked about. Uh, uh, The institutions of justice should not, as I think they are now, because the scale of imprisonment is so large, should not be about uh, limiting citizenship. So let me stop there because I'm I'm sure I'm over time.
1: Us some highlights from the book if you haven't had a chance to read the book I really 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 encourage you to do so both um, it's an important resource for practitioners because it's one place to find a lot of the statistics that we're always looking for um, in terms of what the effects are of and the causes are of incarceration and as students and faculty members it is a tremendous resource for research methods on how you answer complicated questions, what <coughs> kinds of sources you use. Um, and I'm always wondering, well, how do you figure that out? And then Bruce tells you how you figure it out. So I really sort of encourage you to look much deeper into the book than Bruce has even been able to um, shed tonight. So with that, I'm going to open it up to questions. Joe? And maybe when people introduce themselves, if they could just very briefly identify their affiliation so Bruce knows. Okay.
3: Um. Williams, I um, an adjunct. That uh, mass incarceration started in the 70s, and I want to uh, sort of take issue with that in regard to people of color in, in the United States. And that is to say that uh, perhaps mass incarceration of people of color started way back in, in the uh, 1700s and 1800s, and, uh, and has been the case right up till today. Uh, so you would agree with that? Uh, or not?
2: I- it's in, so so there's a, there's a, uh, a, a sociological version of, of your argument I think yes. uh, that, that I uh, uh, that I have a lot of sympathy for uh, uh, the the sociologist at Berkeley Lowick Vacom uh, has this idea that uh, the prisonized ghetto what he calls the prisonized ghetto has become the fourth peculiar institution uh, uh, American race relations he says is characterized by uh, successive institutional forms of racial domination uh, first we had slavery, Jim Crow the ghetto and, uh, and now uh, the, carceral, uh, the carceral ghetto um, I think and, and I, so I find this a, a really provocative idea what I think is, is different about the current period is that the inequalities that have been produced by incarceration have, has uh, done as much to divide uh, African Americans, divide th- those uh, uh, with uh, with college education and uh, uh, and um, professional occupations, say, so, uh, from those uh, with no college uh, education, and so uh, I think what's uh, what, what's somewhat different now is that these really high rates of incarceration have really driven a wedge into the social experience uh, of the African American community, and, wh- which, which I think was not true of Jim Crow, was not true of slavery. And so uh, that,
3: that's how I would distinguish that. Okay. Uh, the other um, assumption that seemed to be made, and I, I just came from a conference, all-day conference on re-entry and employment that the uh, savior, if you will, of uh, folks who are incarcerated, uh, and the formerly incarcerated, will be that they get a job. Now, that is based on the assumption that there indeed is enough jobs for, quote unquote, everyone. And I think that uh, perhaps you disagree with this, That um, that might not be the case. Yeah. And therefore, that incarceration, in fact, has been used as, as a strategy for those who are known, who have become known as the surplus population, uh, wasted population, <coughs> whatever name you want to call it. Uh, so that this becomes, an, a, the solution to this becomes almost intractable if that is indeed the case.
2: Yeah. I, I, I Again, I, I have uh, a lot of sympathy for this account. Uh, you know, part of the cause of the run-up in the prison population, ultimately, I think, was the collapse of uh, urban manufacturing industry, massive urban job loss. Uh, you know, starting from the 1960s. <coughs> uh, uh, New York lost a uh, hundred twenty thousand uh, blue collar jobs from nineteen sixty nine uh, to nineteen seventy nine. Uh, the this overwhelmingly affected uh, young minority, unskilled men. Uh, uh, many working-class whites uh, moved to the suburbs uh, at that time. That's where the jobs went. Uh, uh, these young minority, unskilled men were less spatially mobile. Their housing market opportunities were much more limited because of residential segregation, uh, and uh, and so they're in uh, they're in neighbourhoods which are chronically shorter jobs, and. Know, we can uh, devote resources to uh, uh, you know, correctional education, vocational, uh, vocational education, uh, we can do transitional employment. But ultimately, if there isn't uh, a viable economy in poor neighborhoods, uh, if, if there isn't a demand for the labor uh, of those men, uh, all, the, all the training in the world uh, will not put them uh, in employment. I think policy then has to work. Most policy discussions focus on the supply side. How can we build the skills and make these men job ready? I think policy has to work on the uh, supply side and the demand side. Employers have to be given uh, incentives uh, uh, to, take on, uh, to take on these workers. Some things are out there, tax credits, bonding, and so on. Uh, but I think there's, there are more imaginative things we can do with employers.
0: So now I'm confused, um, how are we supposed to interpret the numbers in your table, if in fact, it's not incarceration causing those economic losses, but there are economic losses causing the incarceration? The, so are, 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 the ta- are the table numbers supposedly treating incarceration as an exogenous variable that has these causal impacts, or have you got reverse causation
2: sweeping back and forth? Which, which table? Well, all the ones that were about the loss in hourly wages, uh, tenure, log-end learnings. Yep. How should I interpret those numbers? So, uh, I've done a lot of work here to try and nail down what I think is a, a, a causal inference. And I can talk uh, more uh, uh, about that with you afterwards. But uh, So, this is a, a group of... Uh, Crime-involved men. We can reduce the sample to those who are at risk of the treatment, as we uh, say in this work on uh, 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 causal inference. So this is a group of men who are all involved in crime. Uh, They're predominantly uh, low-education men. They have very low cognitive scores. We have panel data, so we can fit fixed effects to these data. And so we're going to soak up a a lot of the unobserved heterogeneity. Uh, And we can include in our models uh, uh, variables that we wouldn't normally include in the economic analysis, like whether or not people uh, use drugs, uh, whether or not uh, they're involved in crime. If we restrict the analysis only to men uh, who go to prison, uh, so uh, if we don't compare them to unincarcerated men, uh, but to themselves at an earlier point in time, we obtain the same results. So I've tried to work quite hard here through restricting the sample, Introducing uh, covariates that are associated with criminal behavior, uh, introducing fixed effects uh, to uh, uh, try and provide uh, a, good causal, a, a good causal inference. So I'm trying to take account of the fact that this is uh, already a, a, a deeply disadvantaged population, uh, as you say. Is this the best causal inference? You know, there are certainly other things we could do. Probably uh, not with these data, though. Uh, there are uh, other, things, uh, other things we could do with different research designs uh, and so on.
3: application, for, for some job, probably except for some federal and state prisons, whether or not they went to jail or not, whether or not they committed or something. Just, yeah. I just think that it would probably help. Would it help if ex-prisons were obligated to list on employment applications, whether or not they've been to prison, or whether or not they committed <coughs> felony or misdemeanor?
2: Would it help? Uh, Well, we know they're often asked. Uh, You know, that was something we learned from the audit study in New York that uh, uh, job applications, paper job applications, uh, routinely ask uh, uh, whether you've uh, had an arrest or 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 a conviction. It depends on the uh, on the form. I guess. uh, People who, certainly people who are under supervision, who are counseled by their parole officers to disclose their status, to be truthful truthful about that. Uh, People have made the argument that, you know, it's better for employers to have accurate information uh, because then they're less likely to discriminate uh, against those that don't have criminal records. and so, you know, that's certainly uh, an argument for it. If you don't disclose it honestly, you can be terminated. Uh, if, it, if it's subsequently, you know, if it subsequently comes up. Uh, so I think there are, yeah, you know, there are, there are good arguments. Uh, there are good arguments to disclose it. Uh, the uh, and and you know, employees' concerns are real. Arguments. Zaller, I'm
1: a student here, John Jay, a doctoral student. So as I understand your chart there, you essentially compared men against themselves or against similar type men. That's correct. Um, what happens when, and I haven't gotten a chance to look at your book, what happens when you compare those same kind of men against the population at large?
2: Well, effects fix much larger.
1: Well, obviously, but how much How much larger? I mean, what happens to the figures?
4: Do
2: you have that in your book? Uh, I, I don't... Re- report that. I mean, the, you know, the big effects in, in these data uh, are of education and work experience. And the education and work experience uh, of these men, the men just in this sample, are, uh, are much lower. The average level of schooling uh, in this group is uh, less than 12 years of schooling. The average level of schooling in the population is about 14.
1: I guess the reason I'm asking is at the end when you said, what do we do? I think some, sometimes we do, do a disservice to people and we're marginalizing people more when we compare them against themselves. And when we tell the story, and while I understand the statistical reasons for doing that, don't you think it would be helpful if we, if we took more time to compare them
2: to society at large rather than say, that's what happens to those people over there? I, I, I think for policymakers. You know, we want to be able to distinguish between the uh, effects of socio-economic disadvantage and the effects uh, the effects of going to prison, and uh, because I think uh, uh, a lot of the employment difficulties of, of these men uh, uh, are developing. Uh, before that, long before actually, they uh, they ever were incarcerated, and so I, I uh, so I think you know that's uh, that's the value of trying to uh, nail down the cause and effect.
4: Hi, um, I'm Lydia Ramos. I'm an international criminal justice major, and um, I haven't had a chance to look at your book either, um, but I was wondering if there was anything in there about female incarceration levels and specifically African-American females. Um, and also, before you answer that, uh, I would say that there is a vicious cycle of edu- lack of education and incarceration. And they do go hand in hand. And as the whole thing evolves, <coughs> with the father being incarcerated and the mother being <coughs> the, oh, the single parent who hopefully can find employment, and then the child cutting school and ending up in gangs or just, you know, it's just a vicious cycle that it's going to require a whole lot of work um, to try to turn around or even slow down. Um, but I wanted to thank you in advance for coming here and speaking to us. So anything on female incarceration and the. the
2: so so I, I see this book as very much a gender analysis. and, and uh, all of the focus uh, in my research has been on men, and this, of course, has en- enormous consequences for women in communities affected by high incarceration rates. And the chief effect uh, that I focus on uh, is, you know, having to manage uh, having to manage families uh, with uh, you know with the parents of one of your children uh, uh, in uh, the parents of your children in, in prison. So you know that's the that's the focus I take in this book, and I think I do think you know this is the real significance of the prison boom uh, for gender relations uh, uh, in in poor families. Uh, that said, uh, incarceration is growing faster um, among women than it is for men. Men make up ninety three percent of the prison and jail population, but incarceration rates are growing uh, growing faster uh, for women. I think there's a uh, a very important story there. Uh, I'm uh, one of my students. Uh, one of my graduate students is beginning to get into this uh, a little bit, looking at uh, the effects of parental incarceration, generally uh, of mothers and fathers, the effects of parental incarceration uh, on children. So I'm, I'm that's the context in which I'm beginning to look now uh, at women's incarceration. Okay,
4: and also on one of your tables um, about the children that are affected by the parents being incarcerated and everything on that one. Do you, do you, I can't think of the word, but is it true that, or is it safe to say that um, a lot of uh, young black mothers are having more children so that it would affect the table more? You know what I'm saying? Like white families don't have as many children and actually, Hispanic families, I think, have more children than anybody else. But <laughs> young black families tend to have more than one or two children. So would that affect the, the number is, of children? Is, is
2: that, is that partly, uh, partly what's going on here? Um, right. uh, differences in fertility rates, uh, uh, I, I think, n- not, such a big, uh, not such a big part of this story. Uh, I think what's really important about trends in fertility is the uh, escalating uh, rate of non-marital births uh, uh, among low education, in particular, uh, low education women in general, but you know particularly African American women, uh, and and so. These families uh, are more likely to have a non-marital birth, much more likely than ever before. And this is precisely the same group that's most exposed to the highest rates of incarceration. Uh, So, and and I think there's there's probably some causal relationship there, and some that's just correlation that shows uh, how much demographic and uh, uh, institutional stress these families are under.
4: Um, Good evening. Recently at the uh, Media, Crime, and Justice um, conference uh, last week, there was a panel discussion on the state of the underclass with respect to the criminal justice system, and one of the panelists um, made this statement, and I was wondering if you could respond. He said that we won't see a change in um, the the treatment of young African American males under the carceral state until we as society start to view the human capital of African, young African-American males. And I'm just wondering if you could respond to that, because I think in your slide when you say, what do we do, I think those are all good considerations, but how does the role of um, the way we value black humanity come into play? That's
2: a deep question. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Let me get, let me answer it this way, and I'm I'm not sure it responds directly to it, but I I, I think it is responsive. Um, I I I think uh, the the growth in the penal system has uh, been produced in part by uh, a public sentiment and a willingness on the part of policy makers to, to fully accept uh, this will sound strong maybe sort of melodramatic but I, I think a good case can be made for this to fully accept uh, the humanity actually of young uh, of young, uh, of young Young men, young, low education men uh, in general. Uh, but I think you know, they're partly able to do this because uh, uh, African American men are so uh, overrepresented uh, in the criminal justice system. I think if, uh, if we observe the social effects of incarceration, or if these social effects of incarceration uh, threatened middle class whites, uh, I, I think we would see a different kind of criminal justice policy and a different, uh, less punitive approach uh, to uh, uh, to the problem of to the problem of crime. So I think the social status of, of this marginalized population has everything to do with uh, with how policy uh, with how policy is developed. Thank you.
5: Good evening. No one else has introduced themselves, but I'm Judy Jackson, graduated the forensic program here. And I'm interested in some of the things that you brought up about cognitive deficits and behavioral problems as uh, occurring in the population that tends to drop out of high school. And if you think that's a disproportionate issue in the African-American community as opposed to white or Latino and why, if so, And what remedies could there be for that, especially since other researchers have said that GED programs uh, don't seem to make much of an effect even while incarcerated, but vocational skills does. And should we perhaps go back to the 1950s when there were more vocational programs, mechanics, in school, or the more European model, where they stream kids, those who are going to go to the Sorbonne as as opposed to, say, those who are going to, Work in the factories, although they may be non-existent in this country.
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that is one of the limits of vocational education on a large scale. I think the, the educational problems are really severe, and when the, the the programming options that we currently have are, are, are very limited, and we're not at a point where we're having a sophisticated discussion yet. Uh, about correctional education in this way, so uh, the cognitive test scores data that I know uh, show that uh, people who are involved uh, in the prison system uh, score uh, well below uh, score well below their grade level, um, and uh, and this is also true. Uh, this is also true, of course, uh, of of African Americans. This is the test score gap that education policy researchers uh, talk about. It's not surprising for me uh, that there aren't uh, great benefits uh, to a GED. I think uh, the educational needs in prison are are very similar to uh, the educational challenges facing poor schools. And we need to think harder about uh, uh, remedial and basic uh, education programs uh, that can prepare people uh, for these uh, for these uh, GD programs, obviously this is enormously difficult in, in a custodial setting. It's, I mean, we barely know what to do uh, in in poor urban schools. Uh, so I think we're really uh, you know this is a discussion that's barely gotten underway actually in uh, in, uh, uh, in in corrections. Uh, but I think that's the kind of educational programming. Uh, that could bear more fruit. Uh, the limits of vocational education, I think, uh, 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 you know, you, uh, uh, you, you got absolutely right. I'm not sure if we do this on any sort of scale. We're necessarily preparing people for jobs that actually exist uh, in the economy uh, uh, to which they're uh, to which they're returning. Um, uh, certainly, the, the manual uh, manual jobs are limited and, uh uh, you know the importance of soft skills in the service economy, and so on, uh, suggests uh, we'll need other sorts of prison industry programs, perhaps, uh, to develop uh, the skills the skills for the, the jobs that are in fact uh, uh, available. But it is encouraging mm-hmm. the, the results of vocational education. I think that's a that's an enduring finding, and, and with very long term follow up, we get uh, we seem to get decent results.
0: I'm uh, Peter Moskos, assistant professor in law and police science, and and a former graduate of your department. And I was hoping you could address the cultural implications. Uh, Orlando Patterson, um, sociology at Harvard University, has written a lot about the, basically saying that the structural problems cannot be improved unless we focus first on the cultural problems within the African American community. And I'm wondering if. What you see in terms of the, the conflict between those two, or the way they can uh, they can work with each other.
2: Right. So this takes me right to the limits of my expertise. And um, I, I, you know, I, I see. Uh, it's interesting. I think there's a, you know, there's a, an emerging cultural critique uh, from uh, black intellectuals and scholars uh, of. Uh, uh, of black youth culture, and uh, uh, you know Patterson uh, is a, a scholarly example. Bill Cosby is a uh, a popular example. Um, you know, I, I so I can't I, I can't work out if this uh, cultural critique uh, is just older people getting grumpy uh, about youth culture, which has a very long history. Um, or, uh, uh, or if this is an aw- aw- authentically disabling force, uh, uh, you know that's uh, that's, uh, that's uh, holding uh, holding people back. There's also an issue of, uh, of, of chicken and egg too. I think is is the culture an adaptation to uh, to poor circumstances, uh, or is it the cause of poor circumstances? Uh, I think. I mean, we—you we, know—apropos uh, uh, this uh, this earlier question, we need a way to figure out uh, what's cause and effect, uh, uh, what's cause and effect there, and 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 I think that's a great problem, and I've I think I have little to contribute to it beyond that. But I think we ought to look at these poor circumstances, uh, the culture as an adaptation to poor circumstances uh, uh, as a life hypothesis.
1: I think we're going to have one more question. Hi, my name is Sarah Bradley, and uh, I work at the Center for Court Innovation. Um, but my question is, um, in your research, did you look at all at how, um, in terms of reentry and family disruption, how certain drug war policies, such as um, being ineligible for public housing, or being ineligible for educational funding affect our capacity to um, help folks who are re-entering society
2: Yeah uh, so I, d- I don't look at this uh, I don't look at this specifically I talk a little bit about this uh, in the book and you know this is an area I think uh, that's right for policy reform uh, you know the elimination of uh, these uh, so-called civil disabilities uh, uh, n- not just uh, uh, limits on welfare eligibility, uh, but also uh, uh, you know, prohibitions to uh, licensed occupations and, uh, and, uh, and things like this. Uh, uh, it, it is basically costless uh, to eliminate this invisible punishment, right? And again, this is a repudiation uh, of the, uh, the idea of permanent criminality. I think, you know, all of these civil disabilities are motivated by an idea uh, of permanent criminality. Your punishment is not finite. You can never dispose of your debt to society. Uh, and, and, you know, we could, uh, we could uh, eliminate, uh, uh, eliminate these c- civil disabilities uh, at zero cost uh, to the budget. And, uh, 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 and I don't think, you know, public safety... I don't think public safety would be significantly affected. <coughs> we would probably want to... Uh, retain uh, some uh, uh, some limitations, uh, perhaps in which the uh, the crime is specifically linked to uh, uh, to the legal right. But but then we would you know we would probably want that to expire uh, pretty quickly as well.
1: Do you think there's much likelihood, um, given that it's costless to reverse these policies, that um, they might be reversed in the foreseeable
2: future? I think the political climate is very grim. Uh, I'm, you know, the the book winds. Uh, I, I, you know, I tried to be optimistic tonight. The, uh, the the book winds up on a, a very pessimistic uh, note, and uh, it, there's a twofold problem uh, about criminal justice politics. Or uh, uh, yeah, I, it is a problem. Uh, uh, one is that it's enormously disempowering. And so the, the group that is most affected because of the effects of the policy, it's, it's very difficult uh, for them to mobilise uh, uh, to, to to make change. Uh, the second is uh, uh, voters have a very keen appetite for punishment, and that uh, the, you know, all the public opinion data I've seen shows that this appetite for punishment has been undiminished by uh, you know this uh, fivefold fold vote in the.
5: Thank you. So please join me in thanking Bruce.
1: I I suspect that Professor Western will stick around for a little while if you want to come up and ask him individual questions.